time. And as much as I would love to blame that on our guest today, Ben Falk, he was completely on time. I'm just a little bit behind today between weather events that Ben and I were riffing on as I was getting ready and some other power outages today and stuff like that. Got a little bit behind, so it's my fault that we're late. We'll have Ben Falk on just a minute. He's got a new version of his book. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about resiliency for homesteaders and permaculturists. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the things that Ben's changed over the years. You know, I've worked with Ben a very long time. I'm not sure exactly what year we first kind of connected with each other, but I'm going to say it was before I even moved to Arkansas, and I've been back from Arkansas since 2013. So it's been a while. I've been to his place. It's pretty dead gone impressive. I'm sure it's even more impressive now because that was a long time ago. So we'll have Ben with us in just a moment to talk about permaculture and resilient homesteading in episode 34, 27 of the Survival Podcast on this Wednesday, January the 10th, if you're listening to it live or the day it's published anyway. Otherwise, we're speaking to you from the past. Anyway, let's go ahead and tell you about our two sponsors of the day today. Sponsor of the day number one today is... JM Bullion. Now, this is a sponsor that's been with us for over a decade. Think about that. A decade of sponsorship in the world of podcasting from a precious metals company. Why? Because you guys are awesome and give them a lot of business, so they're not going anywhere. They like you guys so much and they value your business so much, they give you discounts if you're MSB members. I don't know anybody that gets discounts on precious metals other than my MSB members. They have really cool stuff. Uh, I mostly just stack when I'm stacking silver eagles or maybe some rounds or some stuff like that. But I love like all of the kind of the story stuff and, and things like that that you can get kids interested in stacking real value with. They're just awesome. And again, guys, long-term relationship. I have the uh, contact information directly to the president of the company. So if anything goes wrong, which almost never happens anymore, I can get directly in touch with them, and that is a big deal in this world of precious metals where trust is everything. Next up today, above phone. Guys, look, big tech monitors everything you do, uh, but they don't just, it's not just the people that make the phone. It's the people that make the phone. It's the people that make the OS for the phone. It's the people that make the apps, and it's the carriers. But you can replace big tech with your own private ecosystem with an above phone. And they are also a big supporter of the member support brigade. You get 75 bucks off any of the phones available from above phone uh, when you buy using your MSB discount code. That means that just this discount will cover the cost of MSB for 18 months, a year and a half from one discount from an incredible sponsor and some great tech. Check them out today, abovephone.com. And if you're thinking to yourself, self, my problem with this is I'm not sure I'll be able to work it. All the phones come with one free hour of consultation by phone with one of their experts to help you transition from your old school big tech phone to your new freedom phone. And with that, let's bring our special guest, Ben Falk, on the air. Ben, thanks for hanging out while we did our intro, and thanks for joining us today. Hey, good to be back here, Jack. It's been a little while. Yeah, it has. I got an email. This is how this one happened. I got an email from one of your uh, your your PR people for your book, I guess. And I'm like, Ben wants on the thing. All he has to do is fill the form out. We got Ben on any time. I uh, love having you on, man. For people that maybe have heard your expert counsel segments but don't really know your background, could you give kind of the two-minute-ish elevator speech of who is Ben Falk and how you got into permaculture and chose the place that you choose to live? Sure, I'll try. I mean, um, you know, basically, I have a landscape architecture business called Whole Systems Design, and we kind of the the idea that I had twenty 
25 years ago back in college was to combine, was to do whole habitat design. So help people, you know, not just design their house like architects do and not just design a landscape like landscape architects do, although most of landscape architecture is just exterior decoration pretty much as a field. But um, to do it all, to look at all of it and how it's connected and how it can be optimized for goals like resiliency and regeneration and um, and affordability and, you know, optimum function and production and manageability um, and, you know, long term value. So it's really. Um, yeah, but yeah, homesteading is kind of my the main thing I do with my day to day. You know, I keep cows and thousands of trees and um, garden a lot of my food. I try to grow as much food as I can. And I try to, you know, figure out what's possible in this climate um, in terms of diversifying our food production, in terms of building soil and capturing, slowing, spreading, sinking water, drought proofing the landscape, you know, and all of the things that um, that are necessary to do, you know, in especially in these times, um, to be more resilient in the face of a shifting world and um, also to just live better. You know, I always love your, your tagline or your kind of, uh, you know, the, the worst tagline worst. ever, but it is what it is. And it's yeah, right. No, no. I mean, it makes total sense because it's easy to think that prepping, you know, being prepared, being more self-reliant is just this focus on, I, I got to do this stuff in case this or that goes wrong or when this or that thing goes wrong. But, you know, most of it makes our life better, whether that happens or not. You know, if times get tougher, even if they don't, as you always say, is, you know, I, I like that. I, I feel the same way. Like not much of what I've done hasn't just made my life a lot better. There's, you know, there's a few things. Maybe I wouldn't have a few generators. I would just have one. I wouldn't have had to spend that much money on you know, backup power. But most of it's just made my food better, made me healthier, um, made life a lot more meaningful, a lot more hands-on, you know, it's just made everything better. So, um, I don't know, to me, it's a, it's a no brainer, a, a life approach to be, you know, more resilient, more self-reliant and to, uh, focus on improving the places that we live, like to regenerate, you know, the ecosystem health of the places we live, which is also to improve our own health because they're so closely tied together. Yeah. Yeah, when I said the, the the tagline sucks, I was speaking not as someone who wrote it and loves it, but a marketer, right? Like tagline should be short, like three words, you know, and sure. it's just this long, clunky sentence. But it does kind of sum up what we talk about, like take these steps to be more resilient and you will benefit from it in good times or bad. You know, that would be even longer and clunkier. So we went with something that tried to sound like a tagline. I did notice something on the marketing front, though, when you described your company. You describe it as a landscape architecture company, which it is, but I also know you're a well-known permaculturist. But what I've always said about marketing a business from a permaculture principle, unless all you do is teach, mm -hmm. probably don't use the word because the market doesn't really know what the word means, but people know what landscape architecture is. They know what edible landscaping is. They know what regenerative landscaping is. Like Those words are very clear. And unless you're kind of initiated, one of us, one of us, you don't know what permaculture means. But the permaculture person that wants somebody like you knows what you mean when you say landscape architecture. Yeah, well, I had a battle with my publisher in the first edition of the book. Really? called The Resilient Farm and Homestead because they wanted it to be called The Permaculture Homestead. 
or the permaculture farm and homestead. And that's, ex- I just said exactly what you did, which is yeah. basically no one knows what that word means. It's kind of a weird word. You're not going to figure it out. And everyone knows what resilient means. Everyone wants resiliency. No one, you know, wouldn't want to be more resilient. And, uh, the permaculture people are going to hear about it anyway. You know, yep. they're going to find out about it. They're going to, it's up their alley. So why narrow your market? Why narrow the audience for, for this message? Um, so I'm glad, I'm glad they were, they were, it was, it was a pretty hard fight. They really thought it was better. And I finally crowdsourced it and yeah. it, we're like, <laughs> of course, like call it the resilient farm and homestead. Yeah, absolutely. Because anybody understands what that means. And I think that's really important with communication. Um, you do have this new book, right? Uh, it's the same book, but different, right? It's the same, but different, man. A uh, new revision. Can you talk about why you came out with a new edition, some of the changes in it? Yeah. So it's in a, yeah, expanded and revised edition, which is a, 10 years in it. I mean, it's being called 10 years, a decade in a decade after the last book, it's, it's really going to come out about 11, almost 12 years after, but I started writing it in earnest about nine, you know, to 10 years after the first book came out, which was 2013. So that's when, uh, I don't know when you actually visited. I think it must've been just before might've been like 2012 or 2011 when we were, you know, you yeah. were before the show. But yeah, that book came out 2013. This is coming out in the next few weeks. Like I actually may get cop my first actual hard copy in the next few days. Um, and so it's just an update of everything. I mean, a lot's happened in the last 10 plus years, um, not just new things. So, well, not just new things, but also things that just were cool, but didn't stand the test of time. So it was, it's a weeding out of, of, of um, approaches as well. So basically I've been doing this on, the first site for 21 years. So the first book was like, here's a 10 year report okay. of what we've been doing. And then the second book, the book expanded advisory revision is like, here's what we've been doing in the last 10 years. And here's an update on the first 10 years. And Oh yeah. Like Yacon, that's a cool thing to grow, but it doesn't really store that well. <laughs> so it did prove itself as being, you know, a viable alternative or complement to potatoes. And then there's, let's say like, well, in some way, there's there's hundreds of little things like that, but there's let's say a few dozen big things that were like I was really into and is in the first book, but it hasn't stood the test of time. Like growing rice is one of those. I'm not saying don't grow, you know, uh, patty rice. We learned a lot. It's really great for water management. There's a good report on that in the first book. That's pretty thorough. In the second book, I narrowed it down and saying, okay, our climate is not yet long enough of a growing season to make this that worthwhile as a staple crop. So, you know, I stopped doing it. You're uh, so growing rice kind of like I grow tomatoes, like starting it and then replanting it because you had to make it fit. So, well, I always thought it was right, cool. We had to start, I mean, starting a grain in cell tray, in seed trays, like you're starting yeah. tomatoes. Exactly. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense when you have like a thousand, you know, you, but you did prove it could be done. That was what I thought yeah. was cool is you yeah. heard it could be done. And I, I do believe that the way you used it as a water management tool probably paid dividends. I'm just, is there anything you're doing for that differently now? Like if you go to like a perennial, like a cattail sluice or yeah. something like that. So yeah, essentially, I mean, making terraces that are slightly depressed, which is what a patty is on mm-hmm. a hillside is a good thing to have, whether you're going to grow rice in it or not. I want to 
experiment more with growing other things in patties. Like there's probably a lot of other things you can grow in patties. I haven't spent much time with that though. So that'll have to be in a third book if I do it. I just got on to growing, you know, keeping cows and doing a lot of other stuff, mm. doing a ton of metalworking and a lot, just other stuff in my life. So I didn't focus on the patties so much, but um, yeah, so there's just a ton of updates. You know, we did a lot more with greenhouses since the last book. Uh, I had just built a really high performance glass house as the last book came to publication. We've now lived with that for 11 years. So there's a report on that plus two other types of greenhouses that we've designed and built and lived with like a very inexpensive hoop house um, and then cold frames and an even cheaper hoop house. That's like essentially like a salvage. If you want to spend 30 bucks on a greenhouse, you know, here's an option for that. So there's three versions of those in the book. Um, there's yeah something on cow a whole section on cows. There's a bunch on keeping kids on on a homestead, raising kids because I have a six year old now. So having a, a kid integrated with these systems that wasn't in the first book at all, and now you know have something to say about that, have some lessons to learn about that, some things to share on that front. Um, a lot with personal health stuff, just like focus. I mean, my life has become ever more focused on Zone Zero. You know, I've essentially now spent 20 years setting up two different properties and they're they're never fully dialed in, but they're going. They're really dialed. They're producing tons of stuff, even without any work on the perennial front. I mean, you know, our original site, I haven't mulched a tree there in years. And, you know, we're sitting on like hundreds and hundreds of pounds of apples and pears and plums and different things, you know, year after year now. So once you get the perennial engines going, you do start to get more and more time while the production is still happening. So I've started to spend that time on just focusing on my own, you know, personal health. So when I say zone zero, you know, body, mind system, I'm not getting younger. So that, you know, deserves more and more time. So there's a, a big piece on, um, on that, on zone zero, you know, personal health care, vitality, maintenance within, within this whole system, because if our zone zero isn't doing very well, well, we're not we're not able to maintain zones one through four very well. There's a piece on zone uh, zone four also like wildland permaculture, so to speak, like reverse wild crafting, kind of passive gardening over dozens of acres. There's a section on that. Yeah. And a whole bunch of new stuff. So it's 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 I think was worthy of uh, a new printing. Cool, man. I think that's awesome. Can you talk to people just a little bit before we move on about the state of your property when you moved on to it? When I was there, you'd been there almost 10 years. Yeah. And it was really beautiful. But you did a lot because that property was pretty degraded when you moved on to it. And I think there's a lot of that in your part of the country. And the only thing I think that keeps it from being worse than it is, is that it is so hilly, so you know, New England, lots of Pennsylvania and all were never really farmed the way that, like, say, Nebraska or Indiana were with, like, 40,000-acre fields. But there was still a lot of inappropriate grazing, inappropriate cropping. And so somebody that looked at your property even 10 years ago would be like, wow, man, this is really amazing. You're so lucky you have this. But it wasn't like that when you moved in. You used a, like, combination leader follower or actually more of a combined system of chickens and sheep and, and, and a lot of things. Can you talk about what you did to, to get it where it is? Yeah. Well, yes. Animal impact is a big one, but you know, even kind of before that and, and containing that is, you know, earth shaping. We, we really shaped 
did a bunch of terraforming because it is a pretty steep landscape. It's mm-hmm. probably, you know, eight to 20% grade on average throughout, throughout the site. And so shaping the land with swales, paddies, ponds was a major way to just start to slow spread and sink the water to actually get above the water table. Cause some of the water is so some of the water table has generally been so high that that actually makes it hard to grow a lot of stuff besides like willows and alders. Um, so for us, actually swales, you know, swales are thought of still by most people, I think, as like this dry land strategy, like mm. Jeff Lawton, you know, greening the desert swale concept, which is great. But for us, we actually were trying to get above a high water table and we were after the mound not the swale, not the ditch, right? Swale to me is two things. It's the mound and the ditch. We wanted the mound. You're not just going to bring dump trucks and material in to get a mound necessarily. That doesn't usually make much sense. So we got to dig to make the mound and it was the mound we were after. And that first site is what really made me realize how productive mounds are, especially if they're in, uh, uh, not even especially, but mostly if they're in a wet area, our second site tends to be really dry and I actually had to learn that the mounds aren't so good when you're in a really dry spot because they dry out even more. Mm. Um, mm. But they also have warming soil benefits and some other other benefits. But, uh, yeah, so we earth-shaped a lot, animal impact, and then just planting tons of perennials. Also had some amazing experiences with broadcasting seed and just getting ground that really never even had to be mowed because it didn't produce any biomass. Uh, like stuff that would just grow like club mosses and ferns, you know, just uh, ground that you would never even mow, just not producing anything, trying over a decade or two to grow up a tree, you know, a birch or an yeah. alder or uh, an aspen, but really having a tough time doing that or white pine to very quickly with making some swale mounds and broadcasting um, and probably spreading some urine and definitely some wood chip mulching growing like, in, in two years, you know, a thick, uh, a thick sword of clover and also sea berry, sea buckthorn, and uh, eventually plums and a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah, I, I think one of the people things people miss about the swale issue, too, with with mitigating high water is it's not just that we're raising things up in the berm. We're also spreading the water out because even on really wet sites, you tend to find like you have super wet areas, wet areas and somewhat dry areas. And by spreading the water out, we equalize that across the landscape. And I think that does a lot as well. And I think that's why it's a, a solid dry land strategy, but you have to approach it differently in a dry land situation than you do in a steep, high rainfall. You're in a high rainfall area. Um, yeah, generally, one thing we had since the book was written, the first book, is we had about three years of pretty serious drought. And so that was pretty interesting, too, to you know, introduced a lot of new learnings. Yeah, um, dude, your, your drought is our, like, heavy rain year. It's, right, it's weird, right. like, the way yeah. you look at it. Like, it's when, totally when I was talking by, I guess I had forgotten, because I hiked right through kind of a big piece of Vermont 25 years ago, uh, older than that, longer than that now, almost 30 years ago. But I kind of forgot how much dew drop you guys have when I was up there. And I went, I got out, and I'm like, did it rain? And like, no. <laughs> the rain I remember the that. You're like, wow, just the dew is like significant precipitation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had it's never, I, it's not that I didn't know it. I had just 
you get comfortable where you are and you forget what it's like where you yeah. came Well, from, we you get know? in the mountains, we have the cold, you know, the nights drop in temperature. So that yeah. causes a very reliable dew, dew fall yeah. and dew to set. And yeah, if you added up all the dew sets in the summer, you know, you're going to have some inches of, of precipitation. <laughs> you and need a rain. I'll put it this way, guys. If you ever go camping in New England in the summer and it, the forecast says no rain for a week, put your rain fly on your tent anyway. You're gonna That's need your rain fly. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Oh, yeah, we do that all the time. We still we camp out on our deck a lot, and we're always like, oh, we don't have to fly on, or we're not even in the tent. And yeah, yeah. Come, come morning, no rain. A sleeping bag is wet. Stoke. Yeah, yeah. What yeah. do yeah, you think? What do you think? Because I know you're not just a permaculturist; you're a prepper, and I think permaculturists are preppers, whether they know that or not. Uh, but you're aware of it. What do you think people are most missing in in their prep side of things the most often? Yeah, that's a great question because I, I do notice a lot of things like that. And, and I still feel like there's some, you know, I haven't been hugely plugged into the squarely prepper world in the last like 10 years, let's say. Like I'm not on, you know, listservs and different websites that I used to be on more when I was gearing up and, and learning more about it. And since I've got my systems much more dialed, I've, you know, spent my time elsewhere. But so I'm not sure if... I'm not sure the current state of it, but I can tell you, I, I, I bet some of this is still the case. One of the things I always noticed was even in the prepping world, people would have, you know, usually at least in this country, they'd have their guns and ammo taken care of, you know, yes. plus plus. Obviously, you, you, you point this out a lot. There's a heavy emphasis on on the security personal defense thing, and I'm not you know, knocking that as a need, but we've very much emphasized that in the prepping world in this country. And then sometimes there's an emphasis on economics, affordability. You know, you hit on that a lot, making sure you're not in debt and, and all of those things. Uh, but what I see, one thing that's very, always very lacking to me is um, the resiliency and the passivity, like passive survivability and true resiliency of the home itself, of the house. So do you have gravity-fed water or do you have the ability to hand pump water at your house? Is it well insulated if you're in a cold climate or is it a is it able to be passively cooled with vents without uh, active electrical, huge electrical loads to to um, cool it if it is in a hot climate? Um, you know, is it really durably made? Is it made of good, healthy materials that aren't you know polluting your air quality, uh, et cetera, et cetera? Do you have non-electric forms of 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 heat, uh, of cooling, as I mentioned, of watering your place, of keeping um food cooled of, of food storage all of the you know the basics of a good home i, I feel like that's often been, been missed in the in the world of prepping just like a solid home you know house um setup uh that's probably you know maybe the biggest one that i've seen food production you know can be sometimes missed and, and be a big black hole but I, I see that being addressed more and more in the last like 10 mm -hmm. 15 years you know in the prepping world not yeah. just I think most people don't produce, they at least stockpile food if they're actual preppers. But yeah, I think the like passive resilient home is is a really good point. And we you know, we all have to do is look to the past to see the way things were done and see that some things that are very old still work today. And I would say the average stick and brick house is not gonna be around in a hundred years, let alone a thousand. I just noticed this today, Ben. I think this is pretty cool. This is I don't remember exactly where. Somewhere in the Mideast, for those not on the video, oh, it's in Iran. And these are wooden vertical windmills on top of structures that kind of look like housing, but they're really not. They're grist mills. 
And these windmills have been being used to grind grain for a thousand years. And they're still there and they still work. And you compare that to like, we have some roads that we built in 1975 that you need a four wheel drive to drive on now. <laughs> and I think that's yeah. just like kind of peak fiat world. Like we have, we have stopped looking at things as lifetime investments. And I think that is why our housing bluntly sucks at this point. Like if you think about how intelligently designed homes were even 150 years ago, because they had to be like, I've, I've been in houses in like the, the, the South, like Southeastern United States that go back to pre-civil war and you walk in and you're comfortable and it's 98 degrees outside. And you're like, wow, you must've put air conditioner in here. And they're like, no, there's no air conditioning in here. Yeah. They were built, even though they were wooden houses, they look a lot like what we build today in some ways, but they were designed such that they cooled themselves. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, the housing stock does totally suck. And I, I see a lot of um, preppers, you know, living in, in pretty, you know, r like very suboptimal housing, but they have, you know, the food stored and they got all the guns and ammo. And that's just a huge limiting factor. They're spending tons of money on cooling or heating. Yeah. Oh, a guy, I met a guy the other day. I mean, I didn't I know him, but it, he I didn't realize he lives in off grid cabin in Vermont. You know, he's lived off grid for 30 years. He's okay. not a fly by night. Oh, you know, everyone's lived off grid for a year or two. But if you've lived off grid for 20, 30 years, like you're pretty committed. Yeah. You should have your system's pretty dialed because that's a real commitment and not easy in this climate. And he's still burning like eight cords of wood every winter in a 14, 1500. I think he said his house is like 1500 square feet, like not big. Might even be less. Yeah. It might have been 1200 square feet. And I'm like, dude, you could get that down to three cords easily with just changing out your wood stove, maybe burning drier wood. There's probably a few other things, but definitely, yeah. you know, you're, you're using a really inefficient wood burning system. And it's like the difference between three cords and eight is just, I mean, in 10 years, that's 50 cords of wood you didn't need to burn. And, and don't even like break it down to like the environmental consequence or anything, just the, the, either the cost in money or the cost in labor. I don't even know what a quart of season firewood costs in your area right now. It's, but I remember in the eighties, it'd be like 70 bucks a quart. Yeah. Yeah. Here it's two fifty green now. And oh. uh, yeah. Oh. And, <laughs> and dry. If you really want to dry, it's 400 bucks and it's probably $400 a cord. Yeah. For firewood. Well, if it's dry. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah, but this guy is just doing so, I mean, he's harvesting his own wood cause he has a wood lot. Sure. A big enough woodlot, but just the time. I mean, well, the, the cord's going to take you, you know, hours of labor from harvesting to hauling to bucking to and then well, stacking. Let, let's say that you had the woodlot and for one reason or another, you wanted to harvest the eight cords a year and you only use three. Then you have five you could sell. That's 2000 bucks. Right. Yeah, so no, you can either have the money or keep the tree growing. Yeah. And just the time. I mean, I, I harvest three to six cords of wood a year. I, I have, you know, a couple different buildings that we heat. I only need about two in our existing house to heat our home and all our hot water. You know, that's another thing, too, in the cold climate. I mean, the hot water, I put a lot of time since the last book and I'd already put a bunch of time before that was printed into our wood cook stove, hot water, do everything system. And that is just to me amazing that people aren't utilizing these systems regularly. I mean, they're almost no one uses these. And if you're in a cold climate, 
you're just missing a giant piece of low-hanging fruit. Like the biggest piece of low-hanging fruit you could miss besides like getting free wood chips when they're driving down the road yeah. looking for a place to dump it. But even more important, because I mean, wood chips are nice, but this yeah. is, we're talking your heat and your hot water and your cooking. And, uh, you know, that's been a, a big piece. But yeah, heating, housing, and then personal health is the other one. I, I see, you know, the prepping world in general isn't fully up as a whole on some of the really like ancestral baseline health um it's moving there it's moved there a lot in the last 10 years and it's really cool to see and i know i've seen you focus on that more but just taking that more and more seriously because look if you don't have your health good luck with all the other you know and on that though i see a lot of things like people at least moving toward the ancestral uh, herbal remedies and stuff like that and that's good but if you don't take care of yourself, it's limited. So you see this person talking about how you can use like fire cider or whatever, but then the person weighs like, and I don't mean to be mean, but the person weighs like 350 pounds. Well, you, you can drink all the fire cider you want. Your problem is that you are not just overweight. You are extremely overweight and healthy at any size thing. And I, I see that as a big hole for a lot of preppers. I see a lot of really big preppers, yeah. if you if you feel me. And I, I think that is... If you do, if you live the way we're talking about, it will self-correct a great deal just from that. If you stop eating the garbage and grow your own food and buy from local producers and cook your own food and, you know, which saves money on top of it, mm-hmm. you'll, I don't even care if it's conventional food. If you're cooking your own meals, mm-hmm. you're going to be a lot healthier than if you're eating stuff that comes in a box or a bag. No, it's a good call. And if you're growing some food, you know, even all the better, as you know. And then one other thing before we move on to that list, because I think it's such an important um, list, is the is a, a hyper dependency, I would say, of preppers, ten, a tendency of preppers. It certainly doesn't go for everyone, but it's along the piece of the house, lo- along lines of the house piece, the lack of passivity and like dur- true durability mm-hmm. is I see a focus on like a lot of gear, a lot of gadgetry, a lot of electronics and like all that stuff's going to be broken. You know, it's your batteries are going to, you know, not work in eight years when you come back. Oh, now I need this, you know, night vision thing or whatever it is. Oh shit. The batteries are out (laughs) or, you know, you can only have so much backups of everything. And a lot of the high, you know, high tech stuff is inherently brittle. It's just really important for people to understand that. No, no knock on high tech. I mean, there's some amazing things you can do with communications with potentially, you know, optics and, and being able to see at night, you know, the night vision might be one mm-hmm. good example. I'm not, I'm not personally, you know, super into that, but obviously that's a big force multiplier for people who are into that. Um, and some, some other things, but all of it's brittle, you know, as soon as you bring electricity into the mix, you're depending on a brittle system. And that's one thing I see a lot with my clients that I do advising, consulting and design work for is often they have, a lot of resources and they're just focused on, okay, like backup after backup of electricity. And I have to explain to them the systems you make that don't even need electricity to work are much more valuable than 10 backups uh, uh, of an electric version of that. So if you have a root cellar, that's infinitely more valuable than three high performance fridges with five electric backups and diesel and propane stored to run them all. I'd rather have the root cellar. Because that's never going to break and it's still going to work pretty well. 
So that's another thing. It's just the lack of understanding and literacy of, of what of the value of passive systems. Yeah, it's one of my big headaches here that I can't do things like a root cell or whatever. And it's not geography. It's it's geology. Sure, um, yeah. I have a half a foot of dirt where I'm lucky and then it's limestone right. because, you know, you mentioned a root cellar. Well, my grandmother's house was built in the early 1800s. My dad still lives in it. The house was built like the first house was actually built earlier than that. They built like a cellar, a root cellar, and they built a small house on top of it. And then eventually they built a larger house in the 1800s and the smaller house became like a workshop and stuff like that. And the, that cellar, you, you know, it, I I can't tell you exactly what it looks like today, but I know that when I was there in the about the same time I was up to see you in the mid early 2000s, it was just fine. Yeah. You know, that we can stored you, food down blast, there, we hung gear down there. The could you blast the cellar hole there, or would then there be water in the it? Cost, well, that's part I mean, it of it. It's making a swimming yeah. pool. Um, the cost of that is... Yeah. It's pretty high. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, my neighbor spent way more than it was worth, but he was kind of stuck in the middle of it back in the 70s to put a sw- in-ground swimming pool in. And what he told me that cost in the 70s, I can't even, you know, yeah. I go out and buy blasting, some of that here, firewood first. Yeah, blasting here is usually last resort, too. It's yeah. expensive. I've seen it worth it if you need a lot of road material. You know, if you need yeah. the material and you're you're going to buy the gravel and it's expensive, it can yeah. work out. But, uh, yeah. I think we can buy road base here for, like, $15 a yard. I'd have to need an awful yeah. lot of it. <laughs> what, but what is it for, like, a dump truck load of, like, gravel delivered? Uh, 15 yeah. a yard plus a delivery fee, so a 12-yard yeah. dump. It's not that much money. Yeah. See, here we don't pay much per yard, but delivery, they really, I mean, we used to pay 350 bucks a dump truck load of whatever, sand, gravel, you name it. And now it's six to 800 bucks to get a, gra- a dump truck load. Yeah. And I, I, you know what? They probably couldn't load it more than eight yards hmm. because of the weight. Because, like, when, hmm. I've, when I've bought other material from them, I get, they can do 12, and that pretty much fills the box. Yeah. So it would probably be more like eight yards. So, yeah, it'd be expensive, but it, it would never pay for dynamite. Right. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm jealous of everybody that can dig a hole, honestly. Um, yeah. Let's talk about something else you do that I think makes a ton of sense. You have a wood hot water cook stove and you've probably done more with that world than anybody else I've ever seen. And you make it do a lot of things. Can you kind of talk about that? Yeah. Well, firstly, I, I, I think I may have. I mean, I, there's some geeks out there. They're hard to find who who even mess with optimizing a wood stove. Um, but that's crazy. Like, I shouldn't have done more with these things. And there should be people who's like all businesses. And there should be multiple large businesses doing this stuff with teams of engineers marketing, in, you know, making these systems, optimizing them, and then selling these products the world over. It's just crazy. That's not the case. Um, I think it has happened like that here and there in Europe, but yeah, in the United States, it, it ain't, it ain't happening. Um, yeah. All we do is, is work on tweaking wood stoves to a be really high performance. So high efficiency fireboxes. You can also buy them that way now with like gas reburn. You want to be reburning the exhaust gases, the, the volatile gases, because that's like 60% 
of the wood is in the ga- is gaseous form. So if you if you don't have a very hot insulated firebox, you're not burning efficiently. That goes yep. for most everyone's stove. And then you want to um, reburn the gases. That's another level of efficiency. You're immediately cutting your wood use half if you just do those things or more. And then what we do is we do we've done water jackets, we've done stainless pipes through the firebox, through above the firebox, which is better than through the firebox because you don't want to cool the firebox. And now our latest version, like version 4.6 or so I'm on now, I'm realizing I don't need to put pipes through the fi- through the stove at all and I can get all our hot water um, just from the outside of the stove by running copper tubing in splitting it six to eight times or running it in serpentine fashion, just sweating copper, three-quarter inch copper, and just extracting the heat from one or two sides of the outside of the stove to heat three. I have a, a six-year-old wife and me, and we take like 20-minute showers each every day. We'll take a bath every other day. We do dishes. We have a washer washing machine for clothes you know we're not super frugal on our hot water and we have plenty of hot water and all of that hot water is essentially free because of this system i mean we're just making our hot water while we're making our space heat and it's a cook stove so we can bake in it we can cook on it and we dry tons of stuff above it too and you just you if you don't have one of these systems you're just paying for all of those other uses whether it's drying cooking, hot water especially, and uh, then you also have it with all that with no electricity. Um, so it's just yeah, super low-hanging fruit. There's, a, there's some challenges to people getting into it. I mean, it's a little bit daunting technically. You know, if you're not a plumber, I can see why some people are like, whoa, that looks complex, but it's really not that complex. There's some safety concerns. You got to be cognizant of you need pressure relief valves and a few rules you need to follow but that goes for furnaces that are in everyone's house already have you know a a home heating furnace any furnace you might have in your house or i have in my house anyone has in cold climates is way more complicated than this would uh what heat system is i mean way more complicated it doesn't depend on, on pumps there's no pumps so the hot water thermo siphons to our tank so if the if the stove is running, it's thermosiphoning to the tank. You don't actually want a pump to have to do it because if when that pump breaks, then you're going to be boiling water and you know um, sending your pressure relief valve open, and you're going to have water on the floor. You know, so you don't want to do it with a pump. But home furnace system, home heating systems are actually incredibly complex. They're the most complex part of most people's homes. Yeah, I, I agree, and I it I was blown away at what your wood stove was doing for you 11, 12 years ago. And yeah. Dude, you got to see Jack, you got to see the new system. I'll send you actually, I, I've been meaning to reach out to you to see if you want to do some type of collaborative thing where maybe you put out a deal to your following and they can get access to our latest um, online workshop about it. And, you know, sure. and, and it is, it is twice as good as the system that's in my first book. Oh, wow. Okay. It's really, it's really. I just keep improving it, and and there was a lot of room to 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 improve there. We'll, we'll talk about how we can arrange that once sure, we, yeah. you know, off- offline between just us, because yeah, I'd yeah. love to do something for them. Yeah, um, I mean, to me, it just especially in your climate. Like I, I was mentioning to you that next week we have a couple of days we're going to be like nine degrees, but that is 
the reason it's a problem here is we are not built for it because you can't build for it because you can't afford to because it happens once every five years. Um, in your climate, if you don't have a redundancy passive heating system of some kind, I think you're just you, you can't call yourself a prepper because we can be hot and miserable, but everything still works. Right. You get cold enough and you don't have solutions in place for that. Everything breaks and people can die. I mean, it's 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 that self-evident. Oh, I mean, right now, you know, if the grid goes down in New England, you know, people in the right right slash wrong time of year. But a lot of the time of year, at least 20, 30 percent of the year, people's houses are freezing and their pipes are bursting yep. within, you know, some days, you know, and their house is like unlivable. Um, without the electricity to run their furnace because their furnace isn't running without yeah. without the grid, you know. So, and a lot of people, yeah, they're on either oil or gas, but they don't have electrical redundancy. So even though they have a gas furnace or an oil burning furnace, if they don't have a way to move the heat, then it right. doesn't do any good. Like my, I mentioned my dad's place, my grandparents before him, um, it was on oil heat, but everything was running on uh, uh, radiators. So there was no, you didn't need any power to keep the house warm. And, you know, you talk about that now and people are like, man, it's cost a lot of money. My grandparents were freaking poor. I mean, that's just what everybody had because I guess the, the timeline of the structure went back that far. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, just remember, we really aren't very smart. When we get a new piece of technology, we don't like to say, okay, but the old, the old tech still has certain val- certain advantages. We like to say, okay, that sucks. We're just going to do the new thing. I mean, most springs on properties in New England, most old properties had a spring, and they're basically always filled in. you got to, like, find them. Yeah. And it's like, okay, you drill a well. Why the heck would you fill in your spring? Just leave that, too. Like, have the spring <laughs> also. you got some, some, like, superstition about it. Like, why the heck would you just eliminate this as an option? You know? It's just, yeah. We're, we're, we're weird creatures. I mean, I, I don't get it. I found two springs on our second property that were literally filled in. People were like, die spring. I don't want to even Why see it anymore. You know, it's, like, it's common. That I don't understand. It's just, it's asinine. And uh, I don't know. It's some mental problem that that we have Die spring. <laughs> you know, like, like, why would you cover up a spring ever? You know, even if you don't think you need it. I remember but, yeah, in the 80s, my grandparents got rid of their stove and they got an electric stove. And the, the one they had, I wish I could get my hands on it now. I've never seen one even since. It was like half coal and half natural gas. Hmm. So like you like in the summer, you don't want a coal stove running like that. That's misery, you know. But then there was burners that would run on natural gas. But then the other half of the stove was was coal. And when you had the coal in it, you could bake on the oven side. And then you had two top burners that you could make like stock or whatever on the, on, on the top of the stove. And between that and the radiators, I, I never remember being cold in that house. And central Pennsylvania is not as cold as where you are, but it's pretty damn cold. Yeah. And the difference in that kind of heat's pretty interesting to me because I've noticed it down here. Like when it does get cold here, house is plenty warm, but you come inside and you almost feel like the cold is stuck to your body and it takes time for you to begin to warm up. When you walk into like a radiant heat environment, you're like a lizard. Immediately, you feel the heat penetrating into your body. Yeah. And you feel warm so much faster with that. I kind of miss that. 
Yeah, and that's where a wood stove, you know, that's where I just feel bad for people who have outdoor wood boilers is because they've gone to usually moderate to great expense yeah. to heat with wood, but it's not passive. It takes electricity. you got to pump the energy. It takes a ton of wood. And then they don't have a hearth in their house. So like you said, you don't have a, a fire to stand up in front of. Yeah. And uh, that the value, I mean, just the healthcare value of being actually in front of a radiant fire I mean, how long do do we go back with fire? Quite a ways. Like it's it it's deep in our bones for a reason. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think we be, have begun to, um, you know, identify all the ways that being around fire has uh, key health benefits for us. I mean, infrared is one of them, but you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg. So just living with a fire in your home uh, is so so elemental, you know, on its own. So it seems like we've kind of done the same thing about the same time. I may be a little bit behind you with it, but you now are doing some online education as well with some courses. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we're just trying to re- be able to reach more people than can come to our permaculture course, you know, which we do once a year. You were, you were there, you know, a while ago here at our, at our place. Um, and that's just, you know, we've had 30 to 40 people come to our permaculture course Every summer, sometimes two to three times when we, when we used to do it more than once a summer. And that's great. It's a total, total highlight uh, of our year. And we'll, I think, oh, come on, turn that off. Um, we'll always do it. But, you know, there's a huge world of interest that wants to find out about these systems. And so the online courses is a way to, you know, reach them and reach them affordably. So, yeah, we've done like a two wood stove, high performance wood, wood heating, wood water heating, cook stove courses. Um, we're about to do a really big, thorough pond course, which is going to be a multi-hour kind of like pond design, build, maintenance masterclass. We've, we've actually been professionally shooting that, and that's going to be kind of like a, a more significant course. And we're going to do home home workshop. Uh, we're going to do mead and cider making, like home uh, beverage ferments on the on the homestead and farm, and about twenty others. We have a list of that we're gonna we're gonna roll out. So um, a sauna design build, home sauna workshop. Just, you know, pieces that are just there where there's not really good information out there on it, or people don't really um, you know uh, have good access to info. So yeah, that's, that's very our, cool. Yeah, be through. It's you know they're they're announced on our website, Whole Systems Design, but we'll we'll keep you know we're we're gonna announce them in our newsletter too, and people can check check out the website for for updates on those things. I, I think it's really important that we all in this space start doing more of this because, like you say, you know I do a, a fairly big workshop every year at my place, but I I can only do one of those a year without getting a divorce basically you know i mean it was when we did the first year we were here i think we did five in 11 months and that will never happen again um and then you could even in an event like you can only cover so much if you're doing a pdc it's an 80 hour course and there's certain things that have to be done and so doing a deep dive into something that you want to do but would take away from completing the coursework and there's a huge demand for it there's a huge demand for it and I kind of felt like, why would you want me to build you an online course? Because I give away so much information for free. And then I'm sure you experience this when you do your first one and you realize you're building this as an educational course, you're going to take somebody's money for it. The amount of work that goes into it leads you to understanding why people are asking for it because you, you cover things that if you didn't put it in that format, you never would. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, it's true. It does make us realize like, yeah, there's a lot of content here. There's a lot, yeah. a lot to know. And it's not, yeah, if you're just going to do a, a one hour call about it, there's going to be pieces that are people still going to wonder, wait, 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 what yeah. about this? What about this? And, and yeah, yeah. You have to do the full deep dive. And, and you think you've explained it all until you put yourself in a position of somebody who doesn't know what you know. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, there's like yeah. I had to when I started doing this podcast, I had to realize, well, not everybody grew up skin and deer. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there's so many things I just assumed people knew how to do. And it was just because I grew up in a place where everybody did. Mm-hmm. I mean, where I grew up, they closed school on the first day of deer season. I think they yeah. still do. Yeah, that's awesome. Not everybody grew up that way, you know. Right. Well, and also when you're going to it's a way of personal mastery, too, because, you know, the yeah. ultimate like last step of a mastering of skills is when you teach it. Because then yeah. you really have to break down. Well, what is it that I know about this, and why? You know, why? Why is it this way? And you really have to dissect it and understand it at a different level. Agreed. You, you used the term earlier, low hanging fruit. Is there any other like low hanging fruit that you see that people could be doing to improve their resiliency, their production, anything in this space? You know, there's so many, but um, my list, what comes to mind is the list of principles in my book, which is expanded a little bit and fleshed out more in the new book. Um, and one of those is just like passive water. Like even if you don't have a spring up on the hill, you know, think about, we talked about heat before. Water, also super basic need, you know, heat and water right up there, more than, way more than food. If you want your house to be habitable and you're not like trying to go to some neighbors or relatives somewhere because your place isn't livable. And one of the principles that I wrote down is um, house as water tower. So you can store water in the top of your house that can gravity feed and pressurize your entire house. You can hand pump up to it with a bison pump or you can, you know, generate backup generator, your well pump so you can feed it when it's empty. Or you can just haul a bucket up to the top floor of your house and fill the tank if you need to. Super fast. And then that is your house is your own water tower. You Your sink works, your shower works, your toilets flush. We have hot showers a month or a year or even two, three more years after the grid goes down, if that were or when that is to happen. We have hot shower. We don't just have hot water by putting a pot on the stove. We can go in the shower and take a hot shower because the hot the the wood stove doesn't know the grid, doesn't even know the grid ever existed. It's yeah. totally non-electric and the gravity still works. And with that, that, um, you know, water tank up high, that just pressures the whole system. You know, that's, that's, that's the kind of thing that is just passive systems. They don't cost much. You know, you're not spending thousands of dollars on some backup power system or whatever batteries and inverters and all this stuff that so many people do. And they don't even have like such a basic, um, system like that that's literally the cost of a water tank and you could go to tractor supply for that if you want just the cheapo version and some yeah. pex, and some pex tubing and like usually just a couple hours i mean every anyone can plumb pex it's not even like sweat and copper it's so easy very easy so that's just one that comes to mind you know yeah that's a good point it really is and it's it's one of those things that like you said most people could do i just will say water weighs 8.3 pounds a gallon and if you're going to Stick a tank up in your ceiling, do some mathematics and some reinforcement when you do it. I'll just be able to make sure it can hold it. Yeah. We have in one building, we just have a 40 
a 40 gallon tractor supply tank. So it's not that big. I just wanted to prove the concept would work. I mean, there's no reason it shouldn't work and it does work really well, but I just hadn't, hadn't done it. And then when I did it the second time, I got a a brew tank that's stainless because I, you know, become always more and more into health. And it's like, okay, why have it be a plastic tank? And so that's just a, it's less than, less than $200 for like a, I think it's a 15 gallon stainless kettle that you can just hook packs right up to. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah. So you can do small ones. You could do really big ones. Yeah. That's, um, that's one that comes to mind. What are some things you don't do anymore or you've removed? You know, I know that you've, you know, changed some things with livestock and all. Here's a, here's a blast from the past. That's a much younger Ben Falk. I'm pretty sure that picture is from when I was there. Yeah, it probably was because we and had that, that whole, sheep uh, that got really bad fly strike, and I decided I would never own a sheep ever in my yeah. life after I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was probably one of two times we had it. Had it like that was gnarly. Yeah. That does happen with sheep. Um, yeah, so um, keeping sheep. I mean, I don't keep sheep anymore because largely we're we're pretty focused on managing our larger property, which is big enough for cows, and cows are less work. I, I mean, there's a good example. Cows don't get fly strike. Basically, as far as I'm going to understand, like sheep. So they're easier to keep alive. They're, they they want to die less badly than sheep do. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they have their own issues. I mean, sheep are really accessible. Like you can grab a sheep and yeah. do stuff with it. Like a cow, you know, you get your foot stepped on. You might, you know, you got a problem. They're, they're a little, they're more dangerous. Um, but so that's one, you know, the, the rice thing I mentioned is another, um, the yacon, you know, keeping really focused on growing yacon is not something we do anymore. That's I mentioned before. Um, there's a whole list of those things in the beginning of my new book, um, really trying to focus on growing food year round in a greenhouse. I realized that in this climate, there's just not enough light in the winter, no matter how much heat you put into it it doesn't matter. It's not a heat issue. I'm not going to light up my greenhouse all winter to grow just some greens. Mm-hmm. So that's another, you know, pretty quickly realized we don't really want to, that's not a worthwhile trade. Growing a huge diversity of veggies is another, you know, over the years, you learn what you really like, what really stores too. And in this climate, it's just all about storage. You can have all the food you want and August, September, October, but then there's nine more months. So mm-hmm. it's all about storage crops. So focusing more and more on storage, learning what stores. Um, so growing less types of greens and all sorts of snazzy, fancy veggies. You know, we've really narrowed down what we focus on. Um, yeah, those are those are some. And then there's a there's a good size list of them in the book too. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you, what is your favorite thing about homesteading? Like, what is the thing that like, you really like, I'm glad I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the hands-on lifestyle, you know, ultimately, um, just being able to make stuff, fix stuff, sit around the fire from wood that I, you know, felled the tree and hauled it out and split it and stacked it and cook on that fire. I mean, those are the things that, you know, and eat, you know, a beautiful steak from our cows and potatoes and that we have, you know, that just having that story, the whole cycle, um, closing the, the circle, if you will, on, you know, what it takes for us to live. I think those are the things that are beautiful and meaningful and really like keep me so into it. But I say that having living in a world where the shit hasn't yet 
fully hit the fan the way it is pretty much going to here. And then those reasons will be like, hey, I'm really glad that I do this because yeah. of that, too, because the grid went down for a month this winter or whatever. Um, but, you know, we're just still in this, I don't know, amazingly that hasn't really happened yet here. It, you know, it has in a lot of parts of the world that it already has happened. But here it's still easy times pretty much. Europe was pretty tough just to keep your house warm this last last winter. Yeah. Because of all the shit with Ukraine and Russia and gas and yeah, blowing up their own pipeline that brought them gas and every all that other crap, right? Like it and it could have been worse. It actually worked out a lot better than than yeah. some had predicted. Well, I mean, and, the geographical privilege, if you will, that we have here in the U.S. and definitely in the Northeast, it's still pretty amazing. Like, we're just mm. – it's amazing how um, – you ever read any Peter Zine? No. Oh, no. you'd love him. He talks about how basically North America is – he's a geopolitical strategist, and he's just – He's very bullish on the U.S. because just for one reason alone, he's like, yeah, we're screwed culturally in all ways. But look at where we are in the world. It's not an accident that we became so powerful. He just goes through how yeah. much um, how much how dependent places like China and other supposed superpowers are on super distant resources and really just how screwed they are if they're not going to be able to maintain those supply chains. And really, if we were serious, we have it all right. Have everything. Yeah. We, we've outsourced our our self-sufficiency to other people. Like, we can't even make antibiotics now without raw materials from India and China, which is right. dumb. But we don't have to be that way. And when it comes to natural resources, the ability to feed ourselves and to fuel ourselves, we have more than pretty much anybody else in the world. Yeah. I, I think because of the way – like, that doesn't fit the media narrative very well, so they don't want to talk about it, you know. Right. But the reality is, like, Say what you want about fossil fuels. We have 200 years or more of coal that's easy to get to. Yeah. It doesn't mean we should be doing it, but we have it where if you're, you know, if you're in Japan, you got nothing. You got no oil. You got no gas. You got no coal. Right. You don't have any of that. And yet they built their entire civilization on it. So now they're dependent on bringing it in. Same with Europe. Right. Europe has some natural resources from a standpoint of fuels, but not enough to support their population. Yeah, no, the, so much of the world, as he would basically put it, is geologic, is geo, geographically screwed. And we, we've screwed ourselves so many ways, but yeah. we don't have to. We don't have to keep doing that. That's just political. Geographically, we are just. Well, black. who pisses away their fortune, the self made man who earned it or the grandchild that inherited the grandfather's wealth? Right? right. And that's where we are. We're the great, great grandchildren that inherited this now. And. We never, I don't, and I say we, I don't mean you and me particularly. I mean, as a culture, I don't think we ever realized how much value we inherited. We've been convinced that, you know, the color of the flag and the name American is what the value is. But the value is really what is America as far as a place. That's kind of what you're saying. Yeah, it's hard to, you know, it's, we just, I feel like we're in the era of, uh, Weak, weak men creating hard times. Oh, yeah. Oh, this is the fourth, this is the fourth one, man. Like, you know, and I don't know if it's worse to be 20 right now because you're going to be in it longer or to be, you know, closer to our age. We're like, so we're going to be 75, 80 years old in, in, in the middle of this. 
you know, where at least if you got a young and a strong back, you have time to do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I guess we'll, I guess we'll, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I look at my six year old and I'm like, you know, the other day he's like, you know, I want to be a ninja warrior. I'm like, well, you, you may have to be a warrior, <laughs> I hope not, but, you know, maybe you will have to be one. You know, I, I haven't had to be one. <laughs> yeah. You got to get him some of those ninja claws and have him climbing up your cliff face. Uh, <laughs> yeah, oh, he, dude, he is, he is, he's, he's going to be, he is amazing, amazing natural climber. I built him a little climb. He was climbing in this little wall I made him when he was, uh, before he could walk, when he was like, about yeah. and, uh, yeah, no, that, that's, and, and that's the, that's a big part of it too, to, you know, your question before it, what keeps you in it? I mean, when we got into the shit, his fan kind of concept is just having a kid and seeing like he taught his he was correcting his teachers in preschool when they told him he can't eat this bee bomb. And oh. he's like, no, that's, that's Minarda. That's edible. And my teacher told me I couldn't eat that. And we're like, well, what was it? We kind of thought he might be wrong. He's yeah. like, it was just Minarda. And we're like, oh yeah, well, you're right. You, you yeah. know, you know, the plant, you know, you probably don't want to sit down and eat a bowl of it or anything, but it's not going to hurt you. No. Yeah. And it's just funny, you know, to be able to raise a kid that that's a big one. And that's in, in my new book a bit is like, he's going to know a lot of what I know now when he's 12, 13, 14, 15, lots of stuff that I didn't know till I was in my forties, you know, how to weld like most of the plants out here and all sorts of stuff that I just, you know, I didn't grow up with it. And uh, it's just really neat to see that you can download this information and this experience to young people and they can get it so quickly. Like we've hobbled ourselves as a culture so much because we just put people on screens and whatever else, but they can really pick up this stuff just so, I mean, we can accelerate their movement into these uh, self-reliant, more empowered lifestyles so quickly if we just give them the environment. I think kids pick it up because it's innately human behavior. Like, yeah. I think we evolved walking around in the woods, picking stuff up, looking at it, going, I don't know what that is. Hey, Bill, you try it. Bill died. Don't eat it. Right. Bill's OK. You can eat it, you know, and and we, we, we figured out how to learn by observation. And, and we are as a species, we are a hunter gatherer species more than we are an agricultural species. I know Absolutely. that like, I mean, 98 percent of our time walking around with basically the same hardware yep. has been exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I know like one of your things is like you're not going to drive past a deer that got hit on the road without stopping to see if it's harvestable. It's it's one of the highest level of proteins you could take because it's dead anyway. And it's incredibly nourishing and it's completely natural. It's and more vegan you know, than anything that's sold as vegan in the store. <laughs> it absolutely is. I, I do it here, and it, every time I do it, I'm risking get, getting cited because it's illegal. Oh, right. But yeah, Vermont's pretty chill about it, and you're supposed to call it in, you know. Yeah, they don't even have it. You can't even call it in. It's wow. you, Like, you can't do it. Like, Pennsylvania was exactly, you called it in, and if the guy was nearby, he'd come by and give you a, a permit, right. or he'd give you a number over the phone, and then you took it. Here, you can't do it at all, but I figured something out, and that is, I have never seen a game warden in my life in Dallas, Fort Worth, other than on a lake. Right, That's right. the only place I've ever seen one. Nobody hunts here, right? Yeah. So they don't have their time to be here. So I talked to a couple of cops. My brother-in-law is one, and a guy down the street that works for the sheriff's department. And I asked him, I said, do you even have a way to cite somebody for this? And they're like, no. Like you got, The sheriff guy was like, if I really wanted to be a dick, and I don't, but if I did, 
I could say you're endangering traffic or something, but the act of picking the deer up, no, I don't have it. Right. So I'm like, well, then I'm picking the freaking deer up. Yeah. Right. I'm not running out in the middle of the median trying to grab a deer or nothing, but if it's working safely to be picked up, I'm picking it up. So the yeah. last one I picked up, freaking cop was there looking at it. And he was like sitting there with his hands on his hips. And I pulled over and I had gone past. It was like one of these exits where you have to go like a mile around to get back. And I'm like, that wasn't there this morning. That's got to be fresh. So I, I, I come back, I pull up, I stop. And he looks at me, he goes, what's up? And I'm like, well, I was, I was going to pick it up, to be honest. He goes, grab an end. And he helped me throw in the back of the truck. That's awesome. Because it, otherwise they have to deal with it. Oh, yeah. I, heard, awesome. in, I heard in Canada, uh, you just straight up can't do it either. Totally illegal. There are excuses that we're all going to start running deer over on purpose or something. I, don't, I know it's a, it's a bizarre, yeah, one of the more bizarre laws. Although there are so many now, but uh, yeah, I heard in Vermont it's interesting that we have you know a lot of rules in certain ways. We have like tons of rules and lots of expense, but then some things are very hands off. Like some, I ran into uh, a game warden regarding like hunting on posted land, and I realized that basically no one ever gets cited or convicted of hunting on posted land because they the game warden would have to go to court and attest that they knew when that person was hunting there that it was legally posted which is hard to do to begin with yeah and they would have to attest that it was like that you know someone could have just put up a new sign yeah and so they're like no one does it so basically no one gets um cited for hunting on posted land, which I think is kind of cool because there's so much posted land now and so many people have hunted for generations here can no longer even hunt, you know, kind of anywhere if they're in a populated area. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've been raising a kiddo since last we spoke. You, you mentioned that. I remember seeing you posting when you guys had your kiddo. That was six, seven years ago, something like that. Yeah. Well, how, how's that been? It's been great. You know, You're I'm kind of livestock, man. Yeah, definitely <laughs> hard, um, you know, exhausting at times, you know, way more of a, of a heavy lift than so many other things because you're, you know, all of a sudden it's not your own schedule. You're, you know, it's just it's a devotional thing, you know, um, as any as any parent knows, um, none of that's news. So, yeah, hard, but also the most meaningful thing, I think, so far, for sure. It's been a. Uh, it's been amazing and, and, and just great, you know, particularly amazing to, to be a bridge from that human being to the place and, you know, be an interpreter of like, here, we, we call this plant this. Look, look at what's going on here in the soil. Look at how the water is moving here. And just to, you know, to I don't want to even say teach, just to, but just to be an, a, a, you know, an interpreter, to be a bridge between the place and the person and let them, you know, teach themselves, let them help them see you know, everything that, that is happening here. And, um, yeah, it's been awesome and, and super cool to see how, like you said, how, how innate the interactions really are, um, how, how basic it is for young people to just get what's going on, you know, more than adults. I mean, so much of what, of our problems is what we've unlearned, you know, it's been taken from us rather than things we just actually didn't learn, but things we've unlearned. So yeah. it's, been, it's been awesome. Yeah, new parents are always fun because they don't know what they don't know yet. When my uh, granddaughter, who's now eight, was born, uh, my son was holding her in the hospital the day after she was born, and he said something to the effect of, she doesn't cry. I just have one of those babies that don't cry. And my wife and I just looked at each other and thought, 
Oh boy, this will be fun in about a week. You know, a yeah. week later, he's like, I haven't slept in days. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're not at the stage yet of, you know, uh, of it's going to be really exciting when, when my son's like helping, like in a fully functional way, you know, it's still like a lot of like, all right, you want to help me, you know, Oh wait, don't do that. Don't do that. You're, you're stepping on all the new seedlings, but yeah. And that's what, that's what's in my new book a bit is like, what is reasonable to expect maybe at, at, you know, and like we've learned, okay, he he can't help us start onion seeds. Like it's too precise of it. Like, that's just not going to happen. Yeah. But, you know, you want to chop ice, you know, let's chop a hole in the ice so we can go on the ice from the sun. Okay. As long as it's safe, you know, or certain things that are, um, you know, a little rougher, we can, we can evolve them in, you know? All right. Well, let's have a few questions from the audience here. Um, I'm in Georgia and was wondering what is the best way to get a permaculture type help on my property. So they're looking for a consultant. You got any suggestions on that? I mean, I, you're, you're great, but getting you to leave the Northeast doesn't happen much. Yeah. Um, Nick Ferguson's yeah. really good, but he's probably only going to be in that part of the country once a year. Yeah. I mean, I do online consults weekly all over the, all over okay. the world, but uh, you know, over the country, but you know, I don't know someone who's in Georgia uh, who's like a, you know, a permaculture person um, that I could recommend per se or down there. Okay. So, All um, right. Yeah. I say, you know, ask, you know, because there's, there's a lot of us out there, but then there's a lot of us that don't do consulting. <laughs> right. And there's also a lot of people that do permaculture who never heard the term. Yeah. So yeah. If, what depends what you mean by permaculture type help. Like if it's, um, certain things with maybe water systems, you know, there's old t- or food growing it. There's old timers right around you that, yeah. that know yeah. a lot, you know, um, sometimes the best permaculture input is from your oldest neighbors you can find. I think a lot of times the problem is person doesn't really know what they want and that's why they think they need a consultant, but a consultant, if they're really good, they can pull what you want out of you, but defining what you're actually trying to do first, mm-hmm. not so yeah. much what can be done, but if I gave you the magic wand Instead of telling me, well, I want a food forest over there. No, what do you want? What do you want your life and your property to be and do for you? And then you design the thing that gives you the result. Where I think a lot of times one of the things that really cramps people with permaculture design is, one, there's the whole never, if you go take a PDC or whatever, don't design your own property first. You're too emotionally attached to it. Design somebody else's and it's easy but but the other thing is they 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 confuse design with design element. So if I want permaculture, I have to have a food forest, or if I want permaculture, I have to have chickens, or whatever it is. Where all of these elements are ways that we take different colors out of the palette and then paint the picture we're looking for. Well, first you got to know what you're painting, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I guess there's some people that cannot know what they're starting with and paint a pretty picture, but. I'm not one of them. You have to kind of tell me what you're looking for. And then I can. And then I think the other thing is like, be really freaking honest with yourself. Cause most people aren't, you know, you ask somebody, well, like you're, you're working on this property. How many hours a week are you going to put into it? Oh, 20. And you're just like, okay, so five. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> you know how that goes. Yeah. You know, yeah. no, you got to have a clear sense of goals for sure. Weathered soul says I have an overflow sump because I'm in a low area in my neighborhood. 
Is that water potable or should it be collected or rerouted to irrigation? Typical suburban 6,500 square foot lot. I don't know how I would know if it's potable or not. That's his side. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of questions. This brings up a lot of questions, which is, well, how many people are around you? What's happening around you? Is there a reason it's likely to be polluted, which there very well could be? Yeah. I mean, if you do need potable water, do you have potable water from another source? Do you need irrigation? What climate are you in? You know, that brings up a lot of questions. But I would tend to say if you need potable water, I would test it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and then taste it. And it might test well, but taste bad. You know, there's a lot of things to go through. And then you might if you're going to pump it anyway. Yeah, sure. It might as well go to irrigation or someplace you could use it. But that assumes you even need irrigation, which might be a safe assumption because you're bringing it up. So, yeah, yeah that kind of it brings up a lot of it depends. It depends. It depends. But those are the kinds of questions. Questions to ask yourself. Yeah. All right. Um, from Hunter. Have you noticed more buildup inside the flue with the water sleeve? I'm going to say probably not. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, so yes and no. You, okay. you, and we don't use a water, depends what you mean by water sleeve. We've moved away from using a water jacket, which is traditionally how people always did this. They okay. buy a stainless steel. It's much more expensive, even if you made one of those yourself and you can weld stainless, which isn't that hard, but it's to buy the stainless so doing it with pipes is cheaper tubing, um, but it brings up an important point. So yes, you're sucking. You got to get the heat from somewhere. Okay. This question is why I don't like the what I think is a gimmicky idea, which you'll see get a million views on Instagram, which is wrapping your flue with um, flexible copper tubing. Yeah, that'll give you some heat. It might even give you enough heat. Probably not if you wrapped enough of it. Yeah. Then you're making that pipe super dirty right there. Yes. You're, you're precipitating the It's the very similar to a condensation worm in a still. Right, right. Now so you're yeah, distilling wood vinegar on the inside of your pipe. Yeah. So then you got to clean, clean that pipe a lot, which means you better have a T below it or it's a pain yeah. in the ass and hard to do or you get all that crap into your stove. So what I like to do is is take it outside the firebox in a place that's not going to cool the firebox. So you still should have high efficiency burns, which mean you shouldn't have more buildup like you're asking okay. about. Um, in reality, you do suck some heat out of it and you do have to clean out the inside of the wood cook stove a few times a winter. But that only takes like 15 minutes. You pull off the top plates, you clean it out, you either vacuum or sweep it out. But you have to do that anyway with a yeah. wood cook stove. So um, the short long is like not really. And okay. we do not clean our flue ever because we burn really dry wood, hardwood. We're very lucky to live where we live. We have great hardwoods. I mean, I, I can turn my nose up at red maple, which people out west would love because I can burn yellow birch and yeah. beech and um, – Black locust sugar, and sugar maple. And yeah, sometimes black locust, hick, hick, you know, not hickory up here, but if you're further south. So really, really high grade firewood that's super dry. And I check my flu every year, but I, I really never have to clean it because we're burning hot, dry wood. How exactly are you doing this then? Because this is different than when I looked at it. Are you like, did you like build an outside box that this? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. I, so I'll I'll get well. We'll connect about the the latest version because I have videos of it all. Okay. Close. But yeah, we just sweat copper pipe and I put it against the side of the stove outside and I'm using conductive putty and I'm bedding it in conductive putty. Okay. Transfers the heat right into that tubing. Okay. You can do it. I'm going to say, like, if you were running a coil inside, you're going to incinerate copper or melt in there. But well, I'm no, with the water, yeah, copper. I would use only stainless when I go in the pipe in the stove, okay. and it, hold, it seems to hold up great because it's not hot, it's not that hot. It has the water in it, so yeah. Uh, but you know, then you're cooling the temperatures of the inside of the correct more. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, from builder of castles, wood stoves. Are you? Talking dual stage burning rocket stoves. No, this is very conventional. This is just wood stoves, wood cook stoves, especially high high efficiency wood cook stoves are, I think, what everyone should have in a cold climate. Unless you're in a really big place, then you warrant a masonry heater. Um, I'm not I'm not opposed to rocket stoves. Rocket mass heaters are super efficient. And same with masonry ovens, but they don't cook very well because you're only burning them for short periods of time. We have a hot surface that's hot hours a day, mm-hmm. so we should be making soups, making tea, chaga, chaga tea going right now in a big soup and a big nettle tea, and I have you know potatoes baking in the oven because it's hot for like half of the day or more. Yeah. Yeah. And that also allows it to make hot water. I've talked to the best rocket mass heaters and masonry stove heaters in the country and said, can you make a meaningful amount of, I'm like, do you make hot water with these? Can Because I've heard it's, it seems really hard. I've been around yeah. the projects and they're not able to do it. And they're like, oh no, we can. And I'm like, oh, like how much Where? hot water? Like, like one shower a day. I'm like, okay, that's not much hot not water. So because of not, because there's a problem with that system, it's just the pattern of use. Just, you can't transfer that much heat that quickly. Yeah. So they're so so- hot for hours and hours a day. Yeah, I remember being a kid in that coal stove my grandmother had. The giant pot would sit there all day making soups or stock or something like that because it just made sense to do something with it. Yeah, you might as well be cooking. This K-Bonk says open system, and I think he's still talking about the water circulation. Yeah, so our water is pressurized. It's closed. It's just like the rest of the house system. It's under 40 PSI. Uh, around the stove, but then the gravity fed tank, which is 99% of the time off because I have a well pump yeah, is an open system. That isn't, that has a, just a, a rough thread top on it. It's not under pressure. So I think the I, reason he's asking is steam boom, but you, right. so pressure you, release you, valve. you don't, you, do, you got to make sure not to boil it. And if you do, you need a pressure, you need a pressure relief valve in case that happens, which all furnaces have. And, it works. You know, we, we've boiled them on purpose to see how they work. And see if it works. Valve, yeah, pressure relief valves work great. Yeah, they work uh, great. Mythbusters proved it because when they wanted to make a water heater blow through a roof, they had yeah, to over-engineer. basically can't. If they fail, yeah. they start leaking. So yeah. that's yeah. how they fail. So I was going to say, the way they made it, they did make it fine. It looked like a rocket, but they had to over-engineer making it fail. Right. right? right. They had to. Like yeah, you've got to have flow. pressure relief valves, and you need to have a tank that's appropriate its size to your burner. So for us, we like 50-gallon tanks, not the 40 that we originally started with. 50 proved to really be hard to boil. Like they just – our newest one, which is 50 gallons, it'll get up to 160, 170, and just kind of hang there, even if we're not using hot water. Okay. Whereas the 40 will just keep climbing and go 160, 170, 180, and I brought it to 220 once and, you know, sent the water out. 
Yeah, so. I remember you saying that because you know, we all shower, at least I do, less in the winter than I do in the summer. Um, the summer here, you might shower twice. You walk outside, got to take a shower. Here it's the opposite because I'm swimming in the pond. I barely shower in the summer because I'm in the pond yeah. swimming. And oh, okay. in the winter, I'm cold and I go out skiing and I just want a hot shower. So hot I shower. shower. I remember you were saying like you had to like – Make sure you took enough showers to keep right. that temperature down. Of course, then you weren't married. You didn't have kids, so it was just you. Right. No, now we use more hot water because we're doing laundry all the time. And But the other oh. day, my wife and I were home. It was 1 in the afternoon. My kid's at school. And I'm like, this. it was cold out. It was one of our first really pretty cold days. Not even that cold. But we were really cranking the stove. And uh, the tank, I'm like, the tank's 180. I'm like, you want to take a bath? Like, so we both took a bath and one, you know, I'm like, I don't really want to take a bath in the middle of the day, but it was like, good problem to have. Like, all right, let's have, let's run a bath, you know? Um, We could now send a, a zone, like we have enough hot water that intermittently we could turn on a thermostat and heat a slab with like a hydronic loop and have enough hot water to just send it to a zone. That's awesome. I may do that as an addition to the system. You know, I, I may actually do something with floor heating. I have flooring that has to be redone through like 60% of my house in the next year or two. Mm-hmm. And I may do something with subfloor heating when I do that because what a great thing. I don't, I won't need it as much as you would use it, but yeah. you know, on a cold day and your feet are on a warm floor, that's, that's pretty hard to beat. Plus oh, you got warm. that radiant heat through the house. Like a warm body. floor is, is it is the place to put heat if you can. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on your stove, is it a wood cooking stove? Was it bought? Was it built? Yeah. How would you describe it? You, you bought it. Was it was bought. Right? So our newest version is with a J.A. Roby stove from Quebec. Okay. And but I've done it with an Essie from Britain. I've done it with Waterford Stanley's multiple versions of those. That's what's in my original book. But the newest one, which actually didn't even fully make it into the book because I had to finish that. That was six months ago when I wrapped it up. And this is really in the last three months that we did our last version is with this Quebec stove. Okay, wood cook stove. And is that currently being manufactured? I remember like yeah, yeah. I was there. I think was an antique. Yeah, yeah. Those are commonly available but yeah i don't know if they're still making the waterford stanley's i think they might be but yeah no jay roby is a existing company quebec crank it out yeah wood stoves cool man uh ben do you ben jack do you guys do any fishing i don't think you're a big fisherman are you you know i'd like to do fishing and i grew up fishing a little bit um for a minute there i was really into it but i don't i just don't take the time to fish but says the guy with ponds in his backyard with fish coming around no it's it's really low hanging speaking of low hanging fruit yeah doing like fish as a part of our system is like i should be doing it yeah (laughs) i have three million gallons on our second side yeah oh on the other property okay yeah and i just i'm just busy you know it's just bandwidth like Throw a deer feeder with a reflector on the shore instead of to go off twice a day. Oh, yeah. one you, of my, one of my you already have fish. Yeah, one of my permacol. Yeah, I've stocked some of them, and there's fish yeah. that came in on their own on yeah. bird legs and stuff. And the others, one of my uh, permaculture structures is just like, dude, just hang a little light and feed them with the insects that come to the light, and just that works. Fishing, you know, yeah. the, the the good ones I've seen, you have a light, and then you have like a, just a plastic propeller that runs, and so when the insects come in, they just get whacked. Yeah, and it, it knocks them down. Bug lights do okay, but then they get fried, and I don't know. I just don't think mm-hmm. they're probably as 
palatable to fish, but I've seen some that are very expensive. But when you looked at it, you go, well, I could build that for 10 bucks. Mm-hmm. Again, it's just, yeah. a, just a propeller and a light and, yeah. and they'll do it. But yeah, uh, I'm big on fishing, but, and I, I don't have the ability to put in ground ponds here, but I have quite a few, I can call them garden ponds. Some of them are five, 6,000 gallon tanks, basically. Uh, what I don't like about it is that it, it, it ties me to power because I have to keep that water moving or the fish will die. But right. what's beautiful about it is when I do go fishing, I catch something that's legal, but it's not really as big as I'd want it to be. I just bring it home and throw it in. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then the other thing that, that that does is it's, yes, I have to worry about the pumps, but no, I don't have to worry about storage. And with you, you just have a pond that lives in there. Okay. And that means that if it's protein on demand. Yeah, right. yeah, protein on demand, and so yeah, well, our ponds could just be you know make a hole in the ice with an auger, and it's like a live protein root cellar. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about deer, and Chris said, "What about chronic wasting disease? Is that a problem, or just fear mongering?" It's something I've never worried about. If I were to harvest, or somebody else would have harvested, or a truck harvested a deer that looked in poor health, I would not consume it. But I don't worry about it. And I see the big FUD I actually see is if it exists, you can put your socks and shoes on today, go out, get in your car, drive down the road, get hit by a truck, but you're still going to drive your car. The big FUD I see is around like eating meat that's rare. And so now you're going to get chronic wasting disease. It's a prion disease. We don't even really understand what a prion actually is fully yet. And the temperature to kill it is like 550 degrees. So the amount of cooking you do will have no impact on this, but it's also more like bone marrow issues and stuff like that. And like I've gone to where I very seldom cut a bone anymore, like maybe to get the head off for the last bit of it or whatever, but I'm pretty much peeling deer anyway. So I I just don't worry about it. What about you? Yeah, I mean, for us, it's not a big thing in Vermont yet, or supposedly, you know, might get here more, but it's right now not a big thing in Vermont, apparently. Yeah, yeah. But I, no, I, I wouldn't have anything to add to what you said about it. I think it's just most of mostly vegan crap that's trying to scare you, in my opinion. Uh, Chris says, what's the easiest, cheapest technology for heating a hoop house? I have one, but have been terrible at using it to extend the growing season. The sun? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a, that's what I was talking about before, too. Like if it's depending where you are, the heat's not an issue as much as the light depends on your climate. Um, we've learned that I don't that heating a hoop house isn't in our context uh, a good is it, not necessary. It's not something I, I try to do. If I was trying to start seedlings for a commercial grow operation, which any farmer around here is doing, then they use propane. Uh, which, you know, has its issues as far as using uh, expense, not sustainable, you know, and it, I would rather not use it than have to be dependent on it. But that's what all the farmers do around here. Um, you know, if you had a dump load of excess heat from your house, you could heat a small little seed house, you know, just a seed yeah. starting building that's against your house very easily or you have a little wood stove in it. People do heat uh, hoop out small, more like seed houses with wood stoves. But um, the best thing would be to not have to heat it without the sun. The most efficient things I've seen done with that are like in ground, 
where you have that additional insulation from the earth and then you have it's more like a hole with a glass on it and usually they are up against larger structures like a home right like uh, an earth an earth bermed yeah yeah there was that one guy he's either in nebraska or kansas or something like that he's growing oranges you right. know in this and i can't a wallapini i think is what they named it or whatever yeah yeah wallapini is that concept yeah but yeah if you if you you know, earth burn quite a bit, you're going to be moderating the temperatures. You can avoid it's, I wouldn't call it heating, but you're keeping it from getting super cold, which can extend your season. And then the best, most efficient thing I've ever seen done. I don't see homesteaders doing this. This is more of a commercial operation, but Bob Wells, who has new England biochar, I don't think he's actually that far from you. Um, they've got farms in several different locations that they've helped, you know, steward and put together. They have one in the Carolinas where they have two very large biochar kilns. And these things look like 10-yard garbage dumpsters the way that they build them. And so those are primarily to make biochar, which, yes, they use, but you only need so much before you don't need any more. So that's now a commercial production operation, and they're selling the biochar inoculated with compost tea. But that byproduct of heat, what they've actually done in two really big, and they're big hoop houses, they're like half acre each. They've actually put water lines in the ground, and they're recirculating that water through the ground about a foot deep inside the hoop houses. And they still do get some freezing temperatures in there, but they're able to grow almost year-round, just about anything, up to where they're literally taking even like peppers and stuff and pruning them way down and mulching them through the coldest part of the year and then just pull the mulch off and, and continuing to grow. But I don't see a homesteader, someone at my scale, probably even your scale doing something like that. Like that was taking two commercial operations and putting them together. Yeah. Yeah. That, that has, that it was has, impressive though. It yeah. was really impressive. Um, yeah. Living web farms is their YouTube channel that they're on. It's cool. totally worth looking up to see the way that they did that. They have a whole, it was part of a, like a multi-day seminar on biochar that they filmed, and it, it was pretty impressive. Nice, but I'm, I'm sure one of those kilns is probably ten thousand dollars just for a kiln, right? Uh, right. You know, so unless you're doing something with it, I don't see it really working. Yeah. Dusty and Chelsea McLennan, reading your first book currently, can you share if the living security fence is one of the things that has changed for you over the last ten years? That's an informed question, right there. Yeah, I like that. Um, no, I mean, that works out great. You can do it with a lot of different species, you know, hawthorn, black locust. Um, those are good ones, hawthorn especially, because the thorns stay lower than the black locust. Thorniest uh, thing I've ever seen in my life that you grow are those freaking sea berries. Oh, yeah, well, hawthorn. <laughs> hawthorn, I'd rather go through a sea berry bush than a hawthorn. Really? Okay. The thorns are stiffer and longer. I mean, they just will do more damage. <laughs> I mean, it's not an agave, it's not a, like an agave level. Like, yeah. like you'll die, but um, <laughs> uh, you would after enough infection. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, yeah, no, that that's that's a good idea, and it's adaptable to a lot of situations. Um so I, I can't say it's that hasn't changed much as a concept. Very cool, man. Well, yeah. Ben, I appreciate you being with us. You want to tell everybody how yeah. they can find out more about you and your work? Yeah. Um, probably easiest way is go to our website, wholesystemsdesign.com. Um, I post, I try to keep, I'm pretty active on Instagram. I'm not putting so much on the Facebook these days as much, but um, you'll, yeah, my website would keep pretty up to date. And there's a newsletter you can sign up for there. 
where we are uh, trying to keep people more up to date in the last couple of years than we did before that. So yeah, check check out the site and there's it's it's pretty uh pretty kept up with. So and for those on the video, that's the site right there on the screen, and that's one of Ben's designs. And as you can see, what I mean when I say uh, it's it's beautiful, well thought out, well planned design. Uh, when you look at the work that Ben's Ben's done, it, it's very, very impressive. And if you uh, are new to my show, then maybe you don't really know Ben very well. You should definitely check him out at a better level. If you go down in the video notes right below this video, if you're on the video, uh, there will be a link over to the uh, page on my website that will host, host this podcast, the audio and video version uh, if you're watching it live, it'll take about 30 minutes after we end before that ends up there because we're not done yet. Uh, but everything that Ben sent me as far as his resources and all some other things that I noted today, like the fact that his new book is not released yet, but is due to be released soon. And you can pre-order it right now. Uh, I will have links to all of that stuff and more in the audio version of the podcast. And with that, Ben, thank you for being with us today. Hey, thanks for uh, having me back on here, Jack. Good to see you and catch up a little bit. Absolutely, man. All right, folks, real quick before we uh, leave you for the day, I want to remind you uh, that there's some ways you can support us. And one of those ways now, I finally released it, is my online bioreactor composting course. Uh, I've been working on this, and I thought, you know, as our first course, I'd do something easy and uh, quick. And so that resulted in me working from about the 10th of November uh, until yesterday to release that course. And it is now available and uh, it is an extensive course. It's six total chapters with exams at the end of each of them, including after the sixth uh, uh, chapter of it, a comprehensive final exam with a certification. Uh, I have been doing this type of composting now for about five years total I've refined it. I've made it really easy to do. But in the course, I explained the why and the what behind it uh, at a very high level. And so I really recommend that you check it out if you haven't done so already. Quite a few people have already signed up for it. I'll remind you, if you're an MSB member, you get a discount. It's five bucks, but it's only a $40 course. So that's like 12% discount on it. 35 bucks for MSB, 40 bucks for everybody else. Again, quite a few people signed up for it yesterday. Uh, if you did sign up for it, and as you go through it, if you are impressed with it, I don't want you to do it just because I'm I'm a nice guy or some shit or you like my show. If you really do like the course, I would love to get uh, some testimonials uh, from some of you guys sent in about it so we can get those up on the site. My hope is that, uh, and, and, and the course is hosted at homefoodsystems.com. It's going to be its own thing, and I want to bring more people into the fold of learning how to do these things, not just my audience. So that's why we have it setting by itself, and I think uh, having some good testimonials would do a lot uh, to help us out. Uh, next up, do consider doing your online shopping starting at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. My item of the day today is Lowry's Seasoned Pepper. Um, I'm not big on mass market seasonings and things like that. I prefer to make my own, but sometimes something just is really good and you just accept that it's really good. To me, this stuff tastes way better than it has a ride to. I don't even understand why it's so good looking at the ingredients and all. I, I found out about it from my nephew named, uh, nephew, my name Nick, 
I was over at his house and he just threw it on some burgers that he was cooking. I'm like, that is fantastic. Looked at the ingredients and said, there ain't nothing to that, but I'm not going to fight it. And today you can get the great big uh, bottle of it, the large size one, which will last you a hell of a long time for like 14 bucks because it's got a 25% instant coupon on Amazon. But remember, you can support us in the work we do. Uh, no matter what you buy, if you just start your online shopping at tspaz.com. Uh, I, I really uh, hope you guys enjoyed today's show. Ben Falk is someone that I've been associated with since I think 2009. If not, it would have been early 2010. Uh, there's not a lot of relationships I have that go that long. It has to be a person that I really want to be associated with, to professionally associate with somebody for more than a decade. He's an incredibly smart person. I really encourage you to get a hold of his book if you don't have uh, a copy of it. And even if you do, consider getting the new version. I know Ben, for he's not the kind of guy that your publisher is like, hey, if you write a new version of the book, we can sell it to everybody. He's not that guy. He's only going to do it if he has something valuable uh, to exchange. And he is one of the better permaculturists that I know in the world. I've tried like hell to get him to one of my workshops. He just doesn't leave. He loves where he is. He doesn't go anywhere. Uh, I've even tied him in with some other big conference organizers, and he just doesn't leave. So uh, getting through him to him online through his courses or through his books or going to his place is about the only way you're going to avail yourself of his knowledge, and it is extensive. And I'll, I'll say it, all this stuff we talk about works everywhere, but when it comes to Ben, he really does know living in cold climates well because he has his whole life. So if you're a cold climate person, definitely somebody worth checking out with that. I'll be back tomorrow with another episode of the show. Tomorrow will not be a live stream. It'll be an uh, expert counsel Q&A show, so it'll be on the audio side only. Remember, if you're watching me live right now, it'll be about 30 minutes. If you're watching me after the live stream ends, it's probably already there. Link in the video notes below to get everything we talked about today. Take care, guys. Have a great day. Just run you around. They said you should have a house. The American way A dollar down, a dollar a month And you never have to pay There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way